morning. There is a sermon outline in the bulletin, as there is most every Sunday morning. Uh, also, there's an app for your phone or mobile device called Uversion. You can get in the app store right now and grab that. It's free. And we have this worship service uh, live there. You just go to the events section. You click on that. Preston Crest should be the very first one at the top because it's geotagged. Um, so if your location services are on, we'll be right there at the top and click on that and you can follow along. I do think I got the sections reversed on you version, so the first section will be at the end, but you can figure that out. No big deal. Um, I think it's safe to say that there are very few who would challenge the assertion that Jesus is one of, if not the, most influential people to have ever lived. I mean, his birth is celebrated as a national holiday in most countries around the world. His death is celebrated, Easter, as a national holiday uh, at most countries around the world. Um, So Jesus is a person of incredible influence, of incredible power. How did he, just as a real person, how did he how did he engage people around? How did he look at those around him? We believe by faith, we believe that he knew all about people's faults, all about people's failures, all about everything about people. Did he look with a judging, condemning eye at those around him who he, know, who he knew had messed up, who had made all sorts of mistakes? Did he, was he, was he quick to find fault? Was he... Was he the kind of person who was easily, let's say, easily offended, easily upset by the failures and the mistakes of others? And I ask those questions because for me, despite all of the miracles that I believe he performed, despite the triumphant resurrection from death that I believe occurred, for me the most impressive thing about Jesus is the humility of this person who is so central, so important to so many people. He loved people, all sorts of people. I would even say, especially the sinners, especially the down and out, the people living kind of on the margins. No one cared about people more than Jesus. To Jesus, people mattered. All people were important. And sometimes he came across a person who really got his attention, who genuinely impressed him. Um, Something he saw in that person just made him stand in amazement. And in a few moments, we will go to Luke chapter 7, and we will look at the story of a Roman soldier, an officer, who greatly impressed Jesus. It's a story that I think should really get our attention because if a regular person like like me, like, like you, like us, if a regular person is able to get the attention of Jesus, can impress Jesus, I want to know more about that person. 
I want to know more about what was going on there. And before we get there, I want to just kind of remind us of what we've been doing the last couple of weeks in this Unlocked series. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke. We have been exploring how Jesus unlocks, how he releases potential in people that nobody else was able to see. Um, We started out in Luke chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago with the story of a paralytic, a paralyzed man, who was brought, literally carried to Jesus by several of his friends. And they had to get one of the details of that story that's kind of amusing, I think, is how creative they had to get to get Jesus or how to, to get their friend to Jesus, they had to, uh, because there were crowds around the Savior, they had to like climb on top of a roof and dig through this thatch roof to kind of lower their friend before Jesus. It was a story that had a lot of surprises to it. The first might be that Jesus sees this paralyzed man. The first thing he says in the story is, friend... Your sins are forgiven. Not probably what anybody would have expected the first thing Jesus would say. How about you're healed? How about get up and walk? But he says, no. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because really the first thing Jesus dealt with is the first thing he really, when we think about it, should have dealt with. Because the greatest problem that guy had and the greatest problem any of us has is our problem with sin, this separation that we have created between us and and God. You might remember the surprise, astonishment, uh, more like shock and uh, revulsion of the religious leaders who heard Jesus say, friend, your sins are forgiven, and they had a visceral reaction that no one can forgive sins except God. They were outraged that Jesus would make a statement like that. So a lot going on in that story. Forgiveness. Yes, physical healing happened in that story as well from paralysis. But there was something very important going on in that story that Jesus wanted to make clear. Authority. Authority. That He, the Son of God, the Son of Man, that He had authority to forgive sins. And in the next story that we looked at, the story of his encounter with a man named Levi, a tax collector, um, we saw that he had authority to proclaim that the kingdom of God is open to sinners, is open to people like Levi, is open to people who were down and out, people who had issues, people who were not necessarily what we would call good people that Jesus was inviting them to come in the kingdom, find forgiveness, and find a new start, a new beginning with him. Um, Levi, of course, was, we talked about this last week, pretty much reviled by everybody. I mean, he had his friends, but most of the general public reviled this guy because as a Roman tax collector, it was his job to extract money from the people, money that I'm sure they felt like they needed to pay their bills and put food on the table. Levi built his mansion, his portfolio, his lifestyle on the backs of people around Galilee, and he was not liked. And so Jesus caused more scandal, more outrage in chapter 5 by saying, Hey, Levi, why don't you come be one of my followers? Be one of my core group. 
And then more outrage by going to this party at Levi's house with people just like Levi, with all of his friends. And there was Jesus right in the middle of all of that. So this morning in Unlocked, we'll go to chapter 7. Here goes. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and to heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly. They're begging here. They pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house of the, when the centurion sent friends to him. They said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under, there's that word again, authority. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I said, my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So faith, you know this. It's, 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 it's kind of a big deal in the Bible. Um, and Jesus was impressed with the faith of this Roman military officer. And just to get some perspective here, just, just for perspective, some framing of this here, I want you to imagine Mount Rushmore. We've got our presidents up there, but imagine, how about the Mount Rushmore of artists, okay? Um, Monet, Rembrandt, uh, Picasso, maybe Cezanne, um, the, just who would the four greatest painters of all time be? Maybe Tanner Lawley would be up there, um, our own. What about the Mount Rushmore of musicians? Um, Beethoven, for sure, right? Mozart would have his face carved into that wall. Um, perhaps a Tchaikovsky um, or... Probably Vanilla Ice, right, would, would be there. Um, you know, the really great ones. And I ask these questions, I kind of frame it this way, because this story got my, me thinking, what about, what if, what if there was a Mount Rushmore of faith where God carved into this mountain the faces of the people 
who had trusted him most, who had believed in him most. For sure, you got, you got Abraham up there, Sarah maybe. Abraham and Sarah. Moses would be, would be up there. Mary in the New Testament, the mother of Jesus perhaps. We don't know for sure, but Jesus gives us a lock here. Jesus tells us he would put this Roman centurion up there. Wow. You get how crazy that is? You talk about out of left field. Jesus says, in Israel, I haven't seen anyone with faith as great as the faith of that person. You know, that Roman soldier. Guy's not even a Jew. Wow. I'm going to get you thinking. Verse 9, Jesus amazed, turning the crowd that was following him. I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. So this man declared to have this Mount Rushmore faith as a Roman centurion. Like I said, this is a story that I really want to pay attention to. It really gets my attention. And before we go any further, before we talk more about this amazing faith, let's just consider, and this is just, you know this already, but it's good to touch this because it's so important. Just consider the importance of faith, how it is so crucial to us as followers of God. A lot of reasons. Um, The first one, this is on the outline this morning, the first one would be this, faith unlocks God's pleasure and favor. Faith unlocks God's pleasure and favor. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, first part says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. God. Say that word with me, impossible. Without faith, it is impossible. You can't do it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith unlocks His pleasure, His favor in our lives. It's a precondition to walking with the Lord. As the text says, impossible to please God without it. And now the same verse reveals something else. The next bullet point there is that faith unlocks the Lord's blessing. The Lord's blessing, the Lord's reward in my life. If I walk in faith, I believe that God is in the business of blessing me. And so, verse 6, that last part says, Anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, yeah? And that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. God takes care of His people. So blessings and rewards of eternal consequence... Okay, that are unlocked when, when I put my faith in God. For Christians, faith is also vital, the third bullet point there, because faith unlocks salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, we know this. You talk about a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. That's it. I mean, Christian faith, right? Faith unlocks salvation in Jesus Christ. Many, many passages in the New Testament from beginning to end, Here's one from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's read this aloud, if you would, with me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Grace saves us through faith. So no one is going to be saved by doing a whole bunch of good works, somehow earning salvation, 
no one is going to be saved because they figured out how to put the brakes on sin. I, I have no sin, so God's going to let me into heaven. We are saved based on Jesus, on what he accomplished on the cross. Now, since we wear silver crosses and we display the cross, since the cross is such a central symbol of our faith, I think we can forget kind of, I think that word scandal would be a good word for our morning. I think we can forget the scandal, right? It's kind of the, the, the Roman version of the electric chair, the cross. Central to our faith. It caused some degree of outrage and revulsion in the first century. People were like, what? You can't, you can't have a cross be the center of your religion. It still causes scandal. I mean, I've got books on my shelf in the office about people who are saying, no, 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 no. Um, love Christianity, but this whole cross, you know, violence and, and blood and death being central to Christianity. No, 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 no. We, we've misunderstood that for 2,000 years. Um, no, no. And, and Paul actually saw this coming, right? I mean, Paul knew people had problems with this, and people still have problems with this. The centrality of the cross of Jesus dying for us. Atonement. That through his blood we are saved. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Yeah, they're not going to get it. They're going to, what? But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And so our faith is there in what Jesus won for us on the cross. We know that there he bridged the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. God's justice was satisfied. And we are made right with God. Our salvation depends on that. We put faith in that, not faith in our good works. Next, faith unlocks protection from evil. Okay? I mean, we could, this list could be 100 points long, all right? Just pick some of the biggies. It unlocks protection from evil. Ephesians 6.16, in addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. When it feels like you are under attack. No, not when it feels like it. When you really are under attack, how am I going to make it? I can't handle all that's happening to me, all that's happening to people I care about. When it feels like you are under this onslaught of demonic attack, faith keeps you going. Faith keeps you moving forward. Because you've seen what Jesus did with a dark moment like the moment of the cross. He turned it into a great victory. And you know that He can bring that same power into your situation, into your life. The shield of faith, because of it, we refuse to quit. And next, far from excusing us to do nothing. Oh, we're saved by grace. We're saved by what Jesus did on the cross. So we don't do anything. No, no, no. Faith unlocks us to a life of good works. It unleashes God's people in this world 
to bring this redemptive message to people who God cares about. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your what? Your work produced by faith. Faith drives us to do more, to dream more, to help more, to love more. By the way, thank you to all of you who went out yesterday, transformed Dallas. I'm glad we didn't have this weather yesterday. Thank you for all of you who went out. Um, there were over uh, or around 5,000 volunteers, not all from Preston Crest. There are not that many of us. But we joined with many others at points around the city. Lots of pictures and stuff on Facebook. Thank you guys for posting that. It was amazing to see what God did through y'all yesterday. So back to this story that we're looking at in Luke 7, the story of Jesus, the story of this Roman centurion with this faith, a faith that amazed, of all people, Jesus. Let me just point out, because you're going to come up to me afterward and say, wait a second, I, I was looking at the Matthew version of this. Levi wrote a version of this, Matthew, and they look a little bit different. Same story. But they look a little bit different in Matthew's version of this story. It appears that the centurion personally comes to Jesus, talks to Jesus, interacts with Jesus. In Luke's version, it's clear he doesn't. I mean, Luke makes a point of that. He didn't actually, the centurion didn't actually ever approach Jesus. What's going on? Well, there are a number of different possible explanations The one to me that seems most compelling is the one that fits with the theme of the story, which is the centurion's understanding of authority. That he didn't actually even need for Jesus to come to his house. So I believe that he did come to Jesus, as Matthew says, but he didn't personally come. He came to Jesus through the Jewish elders. Then he came to Jesus through his servant. That's how the centurion, a man who had authority, a man who was under authority, that's how he knew to interact with people. He had a lot of stuff on his plate. And I also think he didn't want to leave his dying friend. He didn't want to leave the bedside of his friend. So I believe he approached Jesus, talked to Jesus through the Jewish elders and through his servant. I don't think there's a contradiction there at all. Now, Would the centurion know about Jesus? Of course he knew about Jesus. We know that from the story. But how would he have known about Jesus? Well, a little background. So in a Roman legion, which is like 4,000 to 4,200 Roman soldiers, the centurion was responsible. We always hear 100. Well, it's more like probably 60 to 80. was responsible for about 60 to 80 soldiers. Um, And Rome, at this time, you know, Rome isn't at war with Galilee. But there are Roman soldiers there. Why? Mission in occupied land is to keep law and order, to provide security. Certainly part of that is to keep, uh, keep at bay any kind of insurrection, any kind of rebellion, but also just kind of policing and keeping order in those areas. So do the math here with what's going on with Jesus. Certainly he would have known a lot about Jesus Um, That was his job to know about Jesus. I mean, here's this guy. Everywhere he goes, throngs and throngs of people are surrounding him. No doubt at the paralytic, at, at the place where the paralytic man was healed, that house that was so crowded people couldn't even get into it. People are are just lining the streets around this house. Guess who would have been providing security? 
the centurion, probably not personally, but his men were providing security there. Anywhere there was a crowd gathered, some of his men in that area would have been present, making sure there were no problems and reporting back to their boss on what they had seen, what they had heard. Um, so it was his job to know about Jesus, okay? Um, what about Levi? I think about that story too. So he probably, he probably, almost, well, I would say almost certainly he knew about the healing of the paralytic. His men were almost certainly providing security there. What about Levi? I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Roman centurion in that area, responsible for security, would have known the Roman tax collector in that area. In fact, I think it would be a stretch to say he didn't know Levi. Maybe he was even at the dinner that Levi threw in chapter 5. Think about that. We don't know for sure, but would that be a stretch? Um, anyway, yeah, we could talk about that a while. It's interesting. So he's been tracking Jesus with a great interest. He knows what this rabbi has been up to. And it's clear from the story in Luke chapter 7, he's been tracking Jesus not just because it's part of his job, and it was someone that popular, someone with that many crowds, he needed to know what's going on with that person, but he also has a personal interest in Jesus. Why? Because he has a sick servant. He has somebody he cares about, or as Luke says, he valued greatly, who's very sick, hospice, about to die, according to Luke. So this is the first chance we get to glimpse in his relationship with his servant how amazing faith is translated into real life. So first thing there on that line about amazing faith would be the soldier cared enough about a dying servant, and I would put a circle around that word servant. He cared enough about a dying servant to put his reputation on the line in order to get help. This is the first place we get a glimpse of his faith. In the ancient world, servants and laborers didn't have a lot in terms of rights. Um, they were not considered terribly important in ancient society. For their owners, for their masters, they were tools to be used purely for financial gain. Some of you are thinking not much has changed in the last 2,000 years, unfortunately. But the job satisfaction, the overall quality of life of the servants was not all that important to the masters, to the owners, to the bosses. Um, anyway, this guy's different, and we see it right from the beginning. The centurion is different. He didn't see this servant as being property, but as being a person who he valued greatly. He cared that this guy was sick. He genuinely cared. And maybe, again, this is the reason he doesn't personally go to see Jesus. He needs to stay right there by his servant. So this is the question that I asked myself out of this. Will I or will my faith manifest itself in love? I see love being manifested by this person's faith. Will my faith show up? in terms of the way I love people. So this man who is on the Mount Rushmore of faith, haven't seen faith like this in all Israel, Jesus said, we see this faith being 
translated into love and concern for someone who simply wouldn't have mattered to a lot of people of privilege and power. But he mattered to the century. I don't know about you, but that's something I need to hear. That's something I need to think about. Number two, the soldier's faith manifested itself in a humility that broke through all sorts of barriers to find help. I mean, you name it, really, essentially, from economic to national, religious, cultural, social, racial, all sorts of barriers he's willing to overlook. And what a message that's as relevant today as it was then. I mean, right? Faith translates itself this way. It just doesn't care about a lot of those walls that people put up. So first century, in a world where the rich and the powerful were admired and feared, the centurion respected and cared for the well-being of his humble servant. In a world where the Jews and the Romans didn't really mix, where they were kind of water and oil, the occupied and the occupier, uh, in this world of hatred, of injustice and prejudice, this centurion refused to accept all the stereotypes that had built walls between people. And then just the whole idea of a Roman, right? A Roman pleading for help from his Jewish neighbors. Think about that. How he was willing to put his reputation, he was willing to just ignore all that junk that kept people apart and do whatever it took to help out his servant. Well, Jewish leaders in the area considered him a friend. We know that from the story. They considered him a friend. Um, We don't know all that he had done to help the Jewish community there in the area, but certainly at the top of the list, they tell us he built the synagogue. He funded it, provided potentially raw materials, potentially men, labor. He put the synagogue there. We're grateful. Um, That's why he's able to, to ask these Jewish leaders, these Jewish elders, to, would you go to Jesus He's a rabbi. You're Jewish. Go, go to him and would you just ask him to heal my servant? And they said, yes, absolutely, we will. Verses 5 and 6, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly. The Jewish elders, they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. So here's what I'm left thinking. Am I, or can I be, humble enough to overlook the barriers that would normally keep me from interacting with, associating with other groups, other people? Am I willing to do that? Will my faith look like the faith of the centurion in that way? Number three. And this is also from what the Jewish elders tell us in the story. Long before he connected to Jesus, the soldier was involved in helping the work of God. His amazing faith revealed itself in that way, didn't it? That he was a a friend of the chosen people of God. He was a financial backer 
of what was important to them. The work of God in their community built the synagogue for them. So the question I ask myself very simply is, will I, will my faith look like that? Will I invest in the kingdom as a top priority? That's something to think about. And if I'm a person of faith, then my treasure, my time, my talents, um, those are invested in the work of God. They certainly were for this centurion, who in many ways was an outsider, but Jesus tells us actually he's kind of an insider. He's a person of great faith, amazing faith actually. Number four, the object, and this is so important, maybe this is the one thing you need to hear this morning, the object of this soldier's faith is Jesus Christ. That is the object of his faith. And this is so important for us to understand. Faith, biblical faith, is not the power of positive thinking. Okay? Or it's not the generic kind of power of believing. If you really believe or or like visualizing, if I really visualize this, I can make it happen. That's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is distinguished by the object in whom I put my faith. That's what distinguishes true faith, the one that moves mountains, the one that saves from sin, the one that unlocks blessing and protection. What separates it is this object of faith, namely Jesus Christ, the one in whom I put my faith. Faith... (laughs) Look, faith in yourself is bound to let you down. Um, Faith in money, faith in your physical health, um, faith in some politician or some political party or some cause, those are going to fail us at some point. The centurion, so he puts his faith in Jesus because he understood that a word from Jesus and his dying servant would be, well, he got that. So the question is, have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Have I put my faith in Jesus? And I just want you to think about that. We have people here, I'm interacting with with lots of people here all the time, and we have all different levels of faith represented. Frankly, we have some people who are here with us that don't really have faith and and openly acknowledge that. I just don't believe. I heard this week, I just don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, someone who attends this church with their husband. That's okay. You are where you are. But I would ask you to just think about this. Are you ready to put your trust in Jesus? Those of us who are believers at some point, we did cross that line of faith. And I hope that you will think about that and consider that. Finally, back to the word that keeps coming up in these stories from the gospel of Luke. Authority. Number five. The soldier understood and appreciated the lordship of Christ. He actually calls him Lord in the story. And his authority in the natural and supernatural realms. Okay. Authority. Um, 
the centurion gets how authority works. Look, I tell one of my privates, one of my legionnaires to go. You're going to provide security there in Capernaum. He goes. I tell him to, it's time to eat. My soldiers eat. They don't eat until I tell them. I tell them, you're dismissed. They can go now. I tell them it's time to sleep. They sleep. I have authority in the lives of the men under my command. And I, the centurion says, I'm under authority. Right? I have officers who I answer to. So his faith in Jesus implicitly recognizes the absolute authority that Jesus has, whom he calls Lord. Not just to order around human beings, but to command the natural world and the supernatural world. The Roman centurion acknowledges that authority that Jesus has. Remember what happened? The Jewish leaders, they talked to Jesus on behalf of this guy, on behalf of this soldier. And Jesus is like, okay, let's go to his house. Let me go and visit this servant who is dying. And the centurion says, no, no, no. He sends more people to Jesus. No, 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 no. You don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I, 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 I mean, maybe he understands. A rabbi is not supposed to visit the home of a Gentile. That's not okay. And he's, he's trying to keep Jesus from embarrassment. Trying to keep Jesus from breaking the rules. I don't know. But he gets it. Jesus doesn't even need to come here. Doesn't even need to see my servant. Doesn't need to lay hands on my servant. Just say the word. I know how this works. I know you have authority. So he sends word, don't come to my house. I'm a commander of men. I know I can give orders. My men do it. I know that you can give orders. Wow. Orders to diseases, to infirmities. <laughs> That's some faith right there. I understand you can give any order you want and it will be obeyed. You have that kind of authority, Lord. And when Jesus heard this, that's when the text says he was amazed. I've seen a lot of paintings and drawings of Jesus over the years. I want to see somebody, maybe Tanner can take this on. I want to see somebody do this one. What did Jesus look like when he was amazed? I mean, somebody needs to paint that. We have him loving children. We have him healing. He was amazed. He was what did Jesus look like when he was shocked? I want to see somebody paint that. So will I live? This is a question for me. Will I live each day under the authority, under the lordship of Jesus? Now that word authority is not one of the most fetching, one of the most winsome words in the English language. It's not one that makes us feel good, but is a word that's very much a part of the identity of Jesus. We live in the Milky Way galaxy, which is a kind of a speck of dirt swirling around, well, this universe. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says that Jesus 
by his word, created the universe, and that Jesus holds it together. So yeah, authority is a good word for Jesus. Authority over sickness, authority over sin, authority over death, over life. Authority that makes the demons quake in fear when they're in the presence of Jesus. So again, the question the story asks us, will we choose to live under his dominion? Okay, yeah, he has authority over the universe, over the world. Does he have authority over my world? That's the question. I mean, let's, let's make that personal. Does he have authority in my world, over my workplace, in my marriage, over my checkbook, over my decisions? And that's what we're talking about. When I say, Jesus, you're the Lord, do I mean it? Do I mean it? This morning, do you want to come to Christ and put your faith in Jesus? Even faith, according to Jesus, as small as a mustard seed can make things happen. <clears throat> Will you this morning put your faith in Jesus, except that he died for you on the cross so that your sins could be totally forgiven? that you could have eternal life, and that you could have a life right now. Eternal life starts today, a life of meaning and purpose. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, we invite you to do that this morning. If you just need prayers, if you need to come before the Lord, the centurion comes before the Lord. If you have something that's burdening your heart, somebody that you care about, something that's keeping you awake at night, pray with somebody in the name of Jesus, under his authority. Pray with somebody, huddle up with somebody and bring that before the Lord or come down pray with me or one of our shepherds. However you need to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, do that this morning as we stand together and worship. Hey.